Father in heaven, as we study your word once again, and we study it, uh, studying a sensitive subject, please help us by your Holy Spirit to understand correctly your will for this time. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, as you see, our uh, subject is the feast days. Over the past few uh, decades, I have been receiving a large number of papers and open letters and booklets on one theme, the necessity of observing the national festivals or feasts given to the Hebrews along with the Sabbath days connected with those feasts. Uh, this movement has been gathering momentum, again, among those seriously preparing for final events. Seriously preparing for final events. Much has been written and spoken on this subject. It's totally impossible to cover everything in one meeting. But, uh, and there's a fair amount of technical material based on the meanings of Hebrew words uh, and historical practices. So today I'm just going to address major issues, hopefully enough for us to make clear decisions about this subject. Now as in the last subject yesterday, truth is at the basis of the claims for the feast days. God gave Israel marvelous, a marvelous sequence of observances throughout the year to teach major lessons of the plan of salvation in every particular feast, how God was handling the great controversy, how Satan is going to be defeated. Every year the Israelites were to repeat these lessons so that their children growing up would understand what was happening in God's uh, uh, perspective. The torch of truth would be passed on to the next generation. These were very, very crucial teaching lessons. And then, because of apostasy and uh, in the Christian church after uh, the apostles had gone off the scene, and because of animosity to everything Jewish in the two or three centuries after Christ was here. These, service, these observances were totally forgotten except by a few Jews here and there. And they were replaced, guess what, with Christmas and Easter and Halloween, the best of all. If Christians would have remained faithful to these observances of these feasts in terms of what they taught and what they meant, it would be very easy to understand the different aspects of the atonement, that there is one part in the outer court and then there's another part in the most holy place. It would be easy to understand the reasons for a judgment at the very end of time. It would be easy to understand Christ's new work since 1844 if Christians would have understood and remembered the lessons of the feasts that had been given to Israel. If Seventh-day Adventists would have studied the feasts more carefully, we would not be in confusion today, for instance, about righteousness by faith, justification and sanctification, or the judgment, or the purpose of the last generation. The feasts were and are a tremendous teaching tool for understanding God's plan of salvation. But make no mistake, those who are promoting the feast today are saying much more than this. These new claims in recent years are the ones I'm going to be addressing today. I'm going to quote a couple of statements. Though, this is from those who believe in the feast days. Those who go through the end and are translated will be teaching the statutes and judgments. The law is the Ten Commandments and the statutes. It is also the fundamental teaching which the 144,000 must embrace if they are to give the loud cry. The antediluvians were destroyed for not keeping the statutes, and this will be the ultimate factor which brings the end destruction upon mankind. The 144,000 will teach the statutes in the last days. The statute message is the very heart of the message carried in the loud cry to the world. So, sample statements. Since the feasts are part of the statutes, those are all those laws that were given to Moses to be written down, put in the side of the ark. Since the feasts are part of the statutes, 
We are being told right here in these statements that only feast keepers will be translated, that it is necessary to be part of the 144,000, that it is the heart of the final message to be taken to the world. If that is not part of our message, we aren't giving the loud cry at all. So it's become much more than a teaching tool. It has become the final test by which the 144,000 will be determined. That is the issue of today. For instance, regarding the hailstones, you know, that come in the seventh plague, the last plague, God now stones with hail those who refuse to keep His holy days. So if you're not keeping the annual feast days, you will receive that plague of hail and you will be destroyed by it. All right, we're going to go right into it. I'm going to do as I did yesterday and just go point by point and talk about the issues that are raised by those who believe in the feast days. The claim is that the feasts were part of the heavenly sanctuary before Lucifer fell and that they were part of the creation of this earth before sin ever entered in. That is the claim. And it is based on a Hebrew word, M-O-E-D, moed. It is based on that word. Now that word can have a number of meanings in the original language. It can mean appointment or festival, and that's the term usually used, festival, or assembly or congregation or even appointed time, the word moed. And here's the problem. Every time the word moed is used, they say that's a feast that was kept in heaven before sin, Abraham, etc., way before Mount Sinai. And it is completely improper to assume that wherever that word is used, it always refers to the Jewish feasts. The meaning varies according to context and the usage of, that, of the subject that's being discussed. So I'm going to give you a sample. We're really going to hit the, the Bible text this morning, so I hope you have your Bible with you right now. We're going to go to a book that we hardly ever look up, the book of Lamentations. Don't read much from that one, do we? Right after Jeremiah. And we're going to read chapter 1, verse 15. And this word is used in this verse. Lamentations, chapter 1, verse 15. I'll wait a moment so that you have time to look it up. Lamentations, 1, 15. The Lord hath trodden underfoot all, thy, all my mighty men in the midst of me. He hath called an assembly. There's that word, moed. Here it's translated assembly against me to crush my young men. So what is this assembly? It's the assembly of Israel's adversaries. Does this have anything to do with the feast? Not even close. It's Israel's adversaries assembling together to try to destroy Israel. So the word there has nothing to do with feast. This is just a sample. I'll give you another one. Numbers chapter 14, verse 10. Numbers chapter 14, verse 10. I think this one you'll find very interesting because it's another assembly. Numbers 14, verse 10. But all the congregation bid stone them with stones. What's that talking about? Caleb and Joshua coming back from the promised land. And the glory of the Lord appeared, etc., all the congregation, that's the word moed. Is that anything to do with the feast days? These are the rebels in Israel who want to destroy Caleb and Joshua. And so that's a sample of how this word is used. I'll give you a couple more texts we won't look up if you want to jot them down. Jeremiah chapter 8 verse 7 and Hosea chapter 2 verse 9. Jeremiah 8 7, Hosea 2 9. So the claim... The claim that they make that since the plan of redemption was laid at the foundation of the world and the feasts are unfolding of that plan of redemption, therefore the feasts were established at creation. Well, that's an interesting logical deduction. Just one problem. There's no evidence of that in Scripture. It just isn't there. And the word moed can't be used to prove that even close. The Passover began 
as you all know, this is not a, 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 a rocket science here. It began when the Israelites were delivered from Egypt and the blood was put on the doorposts. That's the first Passover that was ever kept. And then the Day of Atonement had to wait until the whole system was set up at Mount Sinai with the yearly cycle and all of the feasts connected with that. So all of these feasts are connected. The tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles, that pointed to when they would be at rest in Canaan. That was a part of the feast that they were, that they were to, to keep every year. All of these were connected with the Hebrew chosen people after Sinai. There is no, and I mean no, evidence of their existence before Moses. Here's a principle. When you're reading the Bible, a particular text, take everything that that text says, dig deep, find everything that that text says, but make no inferences beyond what the text says. If you follow that principle, you won't go too far wrong. Get everything out of the text, everything you can that is right there in that text that you're reading, but make no inferences about what it might mean, possibly, maybe, and you'll be on much safer ground. All right. There are many statements that are used from Ellen White to prove feastkeeping. Here's one of them from Ellen White. In these last days, there is a call from heaven inviting you to keep the statutes and ordinances of the Lord. Uh, she says again, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You'll find those in Review and Herald, Signs of the Times, Volume 2 of Signs of the Times, page 184, Volume 5 of the Revealed Herald Printed Articles, page 83. But here's the most important statement, and I'm going to spend a little time with this because this is the one most often used to prove that the feasts must be kept. So I'm going to kind of read through. This is, uh, the reference here is, um, is uh, Review and Herald, May 6, 1875. May 6, 1875. This is the most comprehensive statement that Ellen White wrote about the statutes. All right? So here's how she started. Christ, the angel whom God had appointed to go before his chosen people, gave to Moses statutes and requirements necessary to a living religion and to govern the people of God. So statutes and requirements. God graciously spoke his law and wrote it with his own finger on stone. Now that's the Ten Commandments that we're all familiar with. And then she says, God acknowledged these people and made the principles of morality and religion more clear by particular precepts, specifying the duty of man to God and his fellow men for the purpose of protecting life and guarding the sacred law of God that it should not be entirely forgotten in the midst of an apostate world. So he gave extra laws in addition to the Ten Commandments to help guard the Ten Commandments. Uh, Christ who came to enforce the will of his Father. He became the author of the statutes and precepts given through Moses. So they come from Christ. That's very important. The statutes come from Christ. They do not come from Moses. They come through Moses, but they are from Christ. God's people were privileged with a twofold system of law, the moral and the ceremonial. We're familiar with that the moral law and the ceremonial law. The law of types reached forward to Christ. So those are the sacrifices. Those are all the things that pointed forward to Christ's death on the cross. And then the statutes and judgments specifying the duty of man to his fellow men were full of important instruction defining and simplifying the principles of the moral law. So God, in addition to the moral law, in addition to the sacrifices pointing forward to Christ, he gave particular rules about how you treat your neighbor, how you treat your animals, how you treat property, and all of the rules that were pertaining to the Jewish people so that they could be successful. The statutes concerning marriage, inheritance, and strict justice in dealing with one another were peculiar and contrary to the customs and manners of other nations and were designed of God to keep His people separate from other nations. The necessity of this to preserve the people of God from becoming like the nations who had not the love and fear of God is the same in this corrupt age. Now she's talking about our time. When the transgression of God's law prevails, if ancient Israel needed such security, we need it more. 
to keep us from being utterly confounded with the transgressors of God's law. The hearts of men are so prone to depart from God, there is necessity for restraint and discipline. In consequence of continual transgression, the moral law was repeated in awful grandeur from Sinai. Christ gave to Moses religious precepts which were to govern the everyday life. These statutes were explicitly given to guard the Ten Commandments. Now here's the sentence that is used out of this article. They were not shadowy types to pass away with the death of Christ. They were to be binding upon men in every age as long as time should last. These commands were enforced by the power of the moral law, and they clearly and definitely explained that law. Pretty convincing, isn't it? Not shadowy types. They were to be here as long as time shall last. Proof that the statutes including the feasts, are going to continue until the second coming of Jesus Christ. All right, so let's look at what we have here. First of all, it says the moral law was repeated. So it was not the first time around for the moral law at Mount Sinai. It was repeated there. And then it says Christ gave to Moses. It doesn't say repeated. Christ gave to Moses religious precepts. So that's when something new started. The moral law had already been there, repeated. Now God gives statutes to Moses for the first time. So the statutes are not the moral law. We just read the moral law was repeated, the statutes were given. The statutes were given to guard the moral law, protect the moral law, help us to understand the moral law. So that again, they are given for a different purpose. And so we're going to have to look at that. We're going to have to see what is meant here and what is said and what is not said. So let's review, make sure we've got this particular article correct. The uh, moral law is talked about first. The ceremonial law is talked about next. And then the statutes and judgments. And let's make sure we understand this. Um, they were not the Ten Commandments because it says they were given to guard the Ten Commandments. They were not part of the ceremonial law. Sometimes we say the feasts were part of the ceremonial law. The sacrifices were, but the feasts themselves were not part of the ceremonial law. They were part of the statutes. And that's what is mentioned by the, these people, and they're correct. Uh, they were to govern the everyday life, it says. They were for the purpose of protecting life. They specify the duty of man to God and to his fellow man. They define and simplify the principles of the moral law. They apply to marriage. They apply to inheritance. They apply to strict justice in business affairs. They were to keep the people from following the customs of other nations. They were to be binding upon all men in all ages as long as time should last. Those were the, that's the essence of what she said in that article. Just one little thing here, maybe as an illustration. It talks about the laws of inheritance. Are you aware that when you sold property in Israel, you sold it only for the period of time up until the Jubilee year? Let's say you sold property in year 45. And that would mean that that property would be sold to another person for five years. And then you would receive that property back during the Jubilee year. God was saying, I'm not going to let people accumulate property. It must remain with the families. It always reverts back. So actually when you were selling, you were renting property, weren't you? For that period of time. And so the laws of inheritance were very strict. Did any of our pioneers or did Ellen White follow that law of inheritance on the Jubilee year? Any Adventists in all of our history? That simply is not one of the statutes that is being followed precisely today. Uh, there's no evidence that any of our pioneers even thought about using the inheritance laws that were given to the Israelites. All right. And one thing that is very important in all of this statement, this long article, and you can read it for yourself if you want to, there is nothing said about the three major feasts of the Jews. 
There is nothing said about that. It talks about, and I told you what, what we reread of what it was, marriage, inheritance, etc. Nothing about the three feasts. So in the clearest statement that Ellen White has ever made, this article that I've just read to you about the necessity for statutes and judgments, nothing is said about the feasts. That becomes then an inference that is made that, yes, the feasts are part of that system and we must keep it today. So once again, inferences rather than specific statements. Nowhere in all of her writings does Ellen White make the connection between the statutes and the feasts, saying that that is what the statutes are all about. So what I'm going to do right now, get your Bible. We're going to look at samples of the statutes, and we're going to see if anyone keeps them today. All right? First one is Leviticus chapter 7. Leviticus chapter 7, verse 34. And again, remember, every one of these that we're going to read is a statute that God gave through Moses. Leviticus 7, 34. For the wave breast and the heave shoulder have I taken of the children of Israel from off the sacrifices of their peace offerings, and have given them unto Aaron the priest, and unto his sons by a statute forever from among the children of Israel. All right? So are we to give wave breasts and heave shoulders to the ministers today to make sure that they have food to eat because that's, they couldn't grow their own food? This was their food source. From these, uh, from these offerings, a statute forever. Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30. Uh, beginning with verse 19. Exodus 30, 19. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet thereat. That's in the laver just in front of the tabernacle. When they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water that they die not, or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn offering made by fire unto the Lord. So they shall wash their hands and their feet that they die not, and it shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his seed throughout their generations. Does anyone pra practice the fact that before ministers can enter the sanctuary, the, the church, uh, the pulpit, that ministers must wash their hands and their feet? Does any feast keeper practice that? Here is a statute forever for the Lord, unto the Lord. Back to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus 19, verse 27. 19, 27. Ye shall not round the corners of your heads, neither shalt thou mar the corners of thy beard. Now that's a statute, remember. What is this all about? Well, the priests of other religions had something like what we have seen in pictures of the Catholic Church called a tonsure. All right? And, uh, and they shall not mar the corners of thy beard. In other words, trim your beard. So right here, I see some beards, but I think you folks have trimmed them. <laughs> yes, yes, it can be done to take it to an extreme. So right here, this is a statute that is not followed by anyone today except like a person that you mentioned perhaps. How about verse 37? Therefore shall ye observe all my statutes and all my judgments and do them. I am the Lord. This is a statute of the Lord. Turn to the book of Numbers. Numbers 15. Numbers 15. Verse 38. Speak unto the children of Israel and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations, and that they put upon the fringe of the borders a ribband of blue. And it shall be unto you for a fringe that ye may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them. 
This was not a suggestion. This was a commandment. You must have that fringe of blue to show that you are distinct from all the nations around you and that you are holy to the Lord. It was a symbol of holiness and purity. And once again, this blue ribbon. Now, yes, we should be careful about our dress, but must we put that ribbon of blue at the borders of our garments? Once again, not practiced. A couple of others that I won't take time to look up. Exodus 21 regulates slavery, as I talked about a couple nights ago. Six years is all you could have a slave for. That's a statute. Numbers 35 and 36 talks about cities of refuge, where if you were accused of killing a fellow Israelite and you were innocent, you could flee to that city of refuge. There the laws of inheritance are described in Numbers 35 and 36 and the laws of marriage. Now, it has been suggested by those in the feast movement that we are to follow not the specific statement about the ribbon of blue, for instance, but look for the principle behind the command. I agree 100%. That is exactly what we should be doing here. Following the principles, that is the only possible conclusion that can be drawn because these principles of your, of your garment, of your activities, of your cleanliness, whatever it is, will be followed as long as time shall last. Details pass away with the end, not of Jesus Christ dying on the cross, but the end of the theocracy when no longer was God the ruler of the Hebrew nation, 34 A.D. That's when they end, not at the death of Christ. These are not sacrificial issues. These are the theocracy which the statute applies to. But the principle continues. So again, I agree 100%. We are to look for the principles behind the statutes and not necessarily the details of the statutes. My point in this is simply to point out that even those who are very, very strong on keeping the feasts because they are part of the statutes do not keep all of the statutes. They pick and they choose which statutes they are going to follow and obey. All right, moving on. Ellen White well would it be for us to have a Feast of Tabernacles. That's a favorite text. Well would it be for us to have a Feast of Tabernacles. Review and Herald, November 17, 1885. Now she talks about Feast of Tabernacles in another place. Shall we not gather our forces together and come up to the Feast of Tabernacles? Therefore, come to the camp meeting, even though you have to make a sacrifice to do so. This is a Feast of Tabernacles in Ellen White's understanding. A camp meeting. That is Bible Echo, December 8, 1893. And that particular camp meeting that she's talking about was held in December, which is the wrong time for the Feast of Tabernacles. All right. Um, in other words, it is not a commemorative event to be held on the same date as the ancient Feast of Tabernacles, but it is to be an evangelistic event time in which we come together, share our faith, and witness for Christ. She says, interestingly enough, then shall your life henceforth be a continual feast of tabernacles, a continual thank offering. You see what she's doing here? Making the feast of tabernacles into a spiritual experience. That is manuscript releases, volume 18, page 270. And her husband, James White, wrote about camp meetings, these annual feasts of tabernacles are gatherings of the greatest importance. Didn't even bother to call it camp meetings. These annual feasts of tabernacles are gatherings of the greatest importance. Signs of the Times, June 8, 1876. So for Ellen White and our pioneers, they understood the camp meetings to be the parallel of the ancient feast of tabernacles. Again, the principle, you see, not the detail the principle that is involved. All right, let's keep going. Since it is very clear that Ellen White did not 
keep the feasts and the annual Sabbaths. Some explanation has to be found why God's end time prophet did not understand something essential to receiving the seal of God and the latter rain. That has got, there's got to be an explanation. So here is a, a possible explanation. Quote, the Holy Spirit did not allow Daniel to fully understand what he wrote. The same happened to Mrs. White with God's festivals. Interesting. Daniel is dealing with sealed prophecies that were not to be understood until they were unsealed in the 2300 ending period. He did not. It was not his job to understand those prophecies. While Ellen White was in that period explaining those prophecies and writing much about the statutes and the ordinances to be kept today. I don't think that parallel works too well. You see, for Ellen White, the feasts equal, the holy convocations equal the camp meetings. And you can read about that in Testimonies, Volume 6, page 70. There was nothing in any of her writings about specific times for those convocations. Here's another try to explain why Ellen White didn't get it. Like Luther was not given the Sabbath, Ellen White was not given all the light on God's feasts. How about that one? By the way, here's a clear, I mean crystal clear admission that there is no evidence for feast keeping in the spirit of prophecy. In spite of the fact they used some of her statements to prove that we need to keep the feast today. But here they've just said, Ellen White was not given all the light. She did not understand the festival issue. But Luther, my goodness, Luther in great darkness, barely coming out of the dark ages, he didn't have the light on many subjects, did he? To compare that to Ellen White, a prophet of God with a direct connection to the Holy Spirit inspiring her to write preparing God's people for end time events, is that a fair comparison? It doesn't even come close. As in other subjects such as the Trinity issue that we talked about yesterday, the claim is made that Ellen White just didn't understand. She didn't have all the light. We have more light than she had. We must go farther than the inspired mouthpiece for God, for God takes us. We have to learn God's will for us today, even when the prophet didn't get it. That's the claim that is being made. Let's try another one. The claim is made that Jesus kept the annual feast. Here's what Ellen White says. Jesus traveled up and down the breadth of the land, giving his invitation to the feast. That's one of the favorite statements. Up and down the land, telling people to come to the feast. Review and Herald, July 7, 1896. What is that? Well, let's try some other statements. That's interesting. Desire of Ages, page 450. Since the healing at Bethesda, he had not attended the national gatherings. His apparent neglect of the great religious assemblies. He himself seemed to be indifferent to the service which had been divinely established. So he didn't go to the feast, according to this. Uh, Desire of Ages 451. For many months he had been absent from the feasts. So, apparently, the feast that he invited them to was the gospel feast. Not the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost. That's what he invited people to partake of, is gospel and the salvation issues. He didn't himself attend. And by the way, I just, we've got to look this one up. It's so important. Go back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Maybe my notes were not clear. I think it's... 16, I think. Hold on. Yep, 16, sorry. Deuteronomy 16, 16. Here is God's command. This was part of the laws given to Moses. Three times in a year shall all thy males appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose, in the feast of unleavened bread, and in the feast of weeks, and in the feast of tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty. Now that is a specific command, just as direct as the command, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
that every male in Israel must appear three times a year before these feasts. If Jesus did not keep this commandment, was he breaking the moral law? Because that's what they claim the feasts are, the moral law. And here we have the command that every male, three times a year, must, not should, must appear before the Lord. Jesus did not do that. As we just read, he did not appear for many of the feasts. That would mean that Jesus was a lawbreaker if the feasts were the same as the annual as the yearly as the weekly sabbath and so we have a real problem there with that particular understanding so jesus did not keep all the feasts let's continue desire of ages 652 the national festival of the jews was to pass away forever major statement the national she was talking about passover right there the national festival of the Jews was to pass away forever. Now, that is explained by saying that this refers only to the sacrifices on the day that the Passover lamb was, was offered. It has nothing to do with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the eight days that would follow. This is just, they say, the Passover sacrificing of the lamb that would end forever, but the Feast of Unleavened Bread would be continuing till the end of time. So let's check that out. Let's be very clear on that. Acts of the Apostles 390-391. Paul tarried to keep the Passover during the eight days of the feast. Eight days of the feast? Let's look up a Bible text because there is a good Bible text on this one. Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. And we're going to read verse 1. Luke 22 verse 1. Watch the wording carefully now. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called what? The Passover. That's eight days. That's the whole eight-day feast that is called the Passover. Not just that one day on Friday afternoon when Jesus was crucified and the Lamb was killed, but the entire eight-day cycle is called the Passover. Okay? Uh, try an Old Testament text to make sure that this is exactly right. Go back to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 45. Ezekiel 45, verse 21. Folks, I am trying to keep you from falling asleep. Keep on looking up those texts. Ezekiel 45, verse 21. In the first month, on, in the fourteenth day of the month, ye shall have the Passover. What's the next word? A feast of seven days. The Passover is a feast of seven days. Unleavened bread shall be eaten. So Passover is not just one day. It's eight days of that feast. Let's lock it in. Let's make sure because this is a strong argument that's used. Only the sacrifice ended, but the feast continued. Acts chapter 12, back to the New Testament. Acts chapter 12, beginning with verse 3. Herod the king killed James the brother of John, and because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. So he's dealing with the feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after, and here's a mistranslation of the King James. It they don't do it very often. What is the right translation, would you guess, for Easter? Passover. It's Passover. So it says, intending after Passover to bring him forth to the people. And then in that previous verse, then were the days of unleavened bread. You see, Passover equals the eight-day feast that we're talking about right here. So all of these statements say the same thing. Let's see, here's one from Ellen White. The typical service and the ceremonies connected with it were abolished at the cross. And the ceremonies connected with it. That's Bible Commentary, Volume 6, 1061. So the key point is, the Passover is not one day. 
It is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Ellen White said, remember, the national festival of the Jews was to pass away how long? Forever. The national festival. That means the eight-day feasts were to pass away forever. We were not to be keeping the eight days of the feast, not just the one-day Passover. Let's go on. The claim is made that the sacrifices ended while the feast days continued. Ellen White, after the crucifixion, it was a denial of Christ for the Jews to continue to offer the burnt offerings and sacrifices which were typical of his death. That's Signs of the Times, July 29, 1886. So after the crucifixion, if you would offer a sacrifice, that would be a denial of Jesus Christ's sacrifice and death. No sacrifice of any animal was to be offered after the death of Christ. Now they're all agreed with that. That is, tip, that is absolute truth. Sacrifices ended. The ceremonial law ended at the death of Christ. Commenting on the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, Ellen White says, The council had decided that the converts from the Jewish church might observe the ordinances of the Mosaic law if they chose, while those ordinances should not be made obligatory upon converts from the Gentiles. So the Jews could keep some ordinances of the Mosaic law if they chose, but the Gentiles were not to be required to keep them. That sketches from the life of Paul, page 121. This could not refer to the sacrifices because that was done. When Christ died, no sacrifice could be offered. Now, we're dealing with something else. Issues and feasts of the Jewish law. The Jews could keep them if they wanted. Gentiles did not have to keep them. Has nothing to do here with the sacrifices. That was done at the cross. This is dealing about the statutes, the feasts. So, this is very clear. It would also apply to the feast days of our time today. The Jewish converts could continue these if they chose. That's the key point. But it, were not, but it is not necessary any longer. It would not be binding at the end of time. A couple more statements from Ellen White on this point. Paul knew that the typical ceremonies must soon altogether cease. The typical ceremonies must soon Altogether cease. So we're talking more than sacrifices here, typical ceremonies. That story of redemption, page 306. Another, he, that's God, has swept away every ceremony of the ancient type. He has given no liberty to restore these rites. Every ceremony, no liberty to restore these rites. And not again talking about sacrifices, it's talking about the ceremonies. That's Review and Herald, February 25. 1896. So I think we have some very clear statements. So here's one more from the little book Christ Triumphant, page 281. Many who at that time united in the services of the Passover never again took part in them. Light was to shine into their hearts. Never again these early Christians ever participated in the Passover. And remember, Passover is eight days. It's not just one day. So, it's very clear that the feasts were optional after Jesus died. Ah, but there's Paul. Didn't Paul keep some feasts of the Jews? Yes, he did. You can read about it in Acts chapter 20, verse 6, with the brethren at Philippi. And Pentecost is mentioned as well. And Paul kept those feasts. Why did he do that if it was not required anymore? For the same reason, he took a purification vow in the temple. Remember that one? Let's look it up. It's interesting. Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. And we're going to look at verse 24. Christians were urging Paul to do this. We have four men which have a vow on them. Them take and purify thyself with them and be at charges with them that they may shave their heads. And all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. What was the charge that the Jews made against Paul? He didn't, wasn't interested in the law. He was a lawbreaker. He wasn't keeping any of the Mosaic laws, the statutes. And the Jewish and the Christians, the Jewish Christians were saying, look, let's prove to these people who are attacking you that you are not against the law. 
Uh, here are some men who need to be purified in the temple. Join with them. Shave your head too. Go through the ceremony with them. That's not a problem. And that will prove that you keep the law as well as they do. Paul was doing everything he could, friends, to reach the hearts of the faithful Jews. To remove every barrier he could so that they would listen to the preaching about Jesus Christ. And remember, the council in Jerusalem had decreed that you could keep the Jewish feasts and ceremonies if you chose. So Paul was on safe ground here. He kept the Passover with Jews. He kept Pentecost with Jews and Gentiles as a sign of Christian unity. Remember the years 34 to 70 were a transition period in which nothing was quite clear yet. Were the Jews really rejected? Paul said so. And the Jewish Christians said so, but the Jews really didn't see it that way. They were still going on with the system and offering sacrifices and doing everything until 70 A.D. when the whole system was destroyed and they could no longer do that. So these years between 34 and 17 were sort of in-between years. Some Jewish feasts were still kept. Sacrifices were not by the Christians, but still kept by the Jews. A couple of Ellen White statements on this point. Paul did not bind himself nor his converts to the ceremonies and customs of the Jews with their varied forms, types, and sacrifices. He did not bind himself. That's sketches from the life of Paul, 105. He complied with their rules and ordinances to win souls. That's 161, same book. He complied with rules that he didn't have to that were not required. Feasts were not required for this period of time. But Paul did it to, uh, keep, to, to witness and to draw people into salvation. All right. Now, what about our pioneers? Just a quick look. This doesn't prove anything. It's just interesting. Jay and Andrews. When that city, Jerusalem, was destroyed, the complete cessation of their feasts and as a consequence of the annual Sabbaths, which were specified days in those feasts, must occur. Complete cessation of the feasts and the annual Sabbaths. The Jewish festivals, he said, were utterly extinguished with the final destruction of Jerusalem. That's in his book, History of the Sabbath, page 90. Joseph Bates, when their feasts ceased to be binding on them, these Sabbaths must also... No feasts, no annual Sabbaths. That's in his Seventh-day Sabbath, page 14. Uriah Smith, the feast days, new moons, and ceremonial Sabbaths were to cease at the cross. Biblical Institute, page 139. James White, new moons, feasts, and Sabbaths of the Jewish law ceased. They're united. Review and Herald, March 7, 1854. So our pioneers are clear on the subject. Like I say, it doesn't prove it's just a bit of evidence. Our pioneers were clear that the feast days were no longer in existence after the Jewish time. What about the Palestine issue? Remember those primary feasts? They required three ma the males to be present at three major feasts each year. They could not observe it in captivity because no sacrifices could be offered in captivity. They were closely tied to the Israelite agricultural calendar. Remember, they were operating on a lunar calendar, which all, you know, didn't quite square up with the solar calendar. And every once in a while, the agriculture was, was off center by a month, and they had to add a 13th month to their year every now and then to make their calendar work. So again, all of these feasts are tied to the agricultural system, and they could not be kept in captivity. Well, then how can we keep them in the United States? And then how about you if you live in the Southern Hemisphere when the agricultural system is opposite of ours? Completely opposite of what we do in an agricultural setting. And the feasts are very much tied to the first fruits and the harvest of the agricultural system. All right, let's look at Leviticus 23, one of the great proof texts that the feasts must be kept today. Leviticus chapter 23. All right, the whole chapter 
is talking about the feasts of the Lord. Look at verse 2. Concerning the feasts of the Lord. Can you guess, just guess, what word is being used there? Remember where we started? Moed. That's right. This is a moed. This is a feast of the Lord. And so all of these are feasts of the Lord. What is, what is being talked about in verse 3? What is the focus of that verse? That's the seventh day Sabbath. The seventh day is the Sabbath of rest. It's called one of the feasts of the Lord. And that's why we are being told today that the Sabbath is one of the feasts of the Lord, but it is not the only one. Because the rest of the chapter, verse 4, it starts out, these are the feasts of the Lord, and it starts out with Passover. So it puts the Sabbath right in the same context as all of the feasts. Therefore, there is no difference between annual feasts and weekly Sabbath. Annual Sabbaths and weekly Sabbath. It's all part of one package, and we, if we are observing one, we must observe all of them. This is the great chapter. couple of problems here. First of all, in verse 3, as, as we said, is the Sabbath. But then it continues in verse, let's just take a look at verse um, 6. In the first day of the Feast of Passover... Ye shall have an holy convocation, ye shall do no servile work therein. That word servile is interesting. It means ordinary work. It means occupational work. It means heavy duty work. It does not include all work. It doesn't include mowing your lawn, if you want to put it that way. It doesn't include going to the grocery store. It includes your business. Your activities. Now check that in relation to verse 3, which is the Sabbath, seventh day. It says in verse 3, Ye shall do no work therein. Ah, that's a different phrase. On the seventh day, no work at all. But on the Passover feast, no servile, ordinary, heavy-duty, occupational work. There's a difference just in the way the phrase is being used right there. No servile work. Go down in the, as we go through to the end of the chapter. Verses 37 and 38. Verses 37 and 38. These are the feasts of the Lord. All right? Describing every one of the feasts here. Which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations. To offer an offering made by fire, a burnt offering, a meat offering, etc. Beside the Sabbaths of the Lord. Ah, interesting phrase. The feast days are beside the Sabbaths of the Lord. The Sabbaths of the Lord is a very interesting phrase. It's never used of the feast, the annual feast, only of the weekly Sabbath, the Sabbath of the Lord. The, um, uh, the ordinary feasts were called, um, got it here quickly, it is your Sabbaths. The annual Sabbaths are called your Sabbaths. The Sabbath of the Lord is called my Sabbath. The phrasing is different. And it's not just an accident. My Sabbath always refers to the seventh day Sabbath. Your Sabbaths refers to the annual feast. God is making a difference. He is saying something important there. And so the... the, the the phrase here that is said beside the Sabbaths of the Lord is really, really important on this point. One more here. Some are saying that the feast can be separated from the sacrifices. You don't offer the sacrifice, you keep the feast. The Hebrew word chak, C-H-A-Q, is one of the words by which the feasts are called, in addition to moed. Chak is one more word. And it literally refers to the sacrificial vi victim. I'm going to read one text so you can read it for yourself. Exodus chapter 23, verse 18 is a text that uses this word in referring to the feasts. Exodus 23, 18. Thou shalt not offer the blood of my sacrifice, my chak, with leavened bread. Neither shall the fat of my sacrifice, my chalk, remain until the morning. So here it is clear, very clear, that the word chalk refers to sacrifice. 
And it is one of the words used to, to call the feasts in the, in the Old Testament. So it, very interesting that the feasts were extensions of the sacrificial animal. The animal was there and the feast grew out of that. I don't believe it is biblically, biblically correct to say that you can separate the sacrifices from the feast. They were central to the feasts. They were central. And one last point. The study of the feasts. They teach valuable lessons about the plan of salvation. And our time is well spent in studying them. But to make them a test of obedience on the same level as the seventh day Sabbath, my friends, is making a man-made test that God does not require. A man-made rule in the same way that Sunday will become the man-made test of obedience at the end of time. Exactly the same way. Anything that God does not require is a man-made test. Any human rule not clearly specified in inspiration is stealing glory from God and His commandments. Any man-made rule. My friends, life or death issues, salvation, seal of God, Loud cry, life or death issues do not need inferences drawn from a text here and a passage there. They need to be clear, spelled out, precise, unmistakable if it is going to be a test of life or death, eternal life or eternal death. God always makes that clear. Ellen White has an interesting comment here. They, meaning some people in her time, they were pressed beyond measure to receive the message of error. It was represented to them that unless they did this, receive it, they would be lost. That's exactly what is being said today about the feast. That is Selected Messages, Volume 2, 34 and 35. That if they did not receive the message that someone was presenting, they would be lost. And that is what we are hearing today from our friends that believe that the feast must be kept. All right, those are some of the reasons that I do not believe that the feast day movement is a movement of God for the end of time. I'm going to share something else with you right here. I found this, I found this in a little book written by one of the primary authors and representatives of the feast day movement, Melody and Richard Drake, called God's Holidays. And while it has nothing to do with the feast, I think you'll find it interesting. Our old natures are taken away, and our new natures are given to us during the Great Tribulation. Our new nature is given to us when our sins are blotted out during the latter rain. Uh, there, in, in which in the, when Adam lived in his sinlessness, we are told the only way God's people will not sin is if they have been given the perfect nature. Our very nature and being is still sin. Even when we are not willfully sinning, we are in a state of sin. Our sinful nature has to be changed before probation closes forever. Our sinful natures have to be changed or we will not be able to stand for one moment after the close of, of probation without sinning. We must reach Adam's pre-fall nature before the second coming. The only way they can be ready is if he has given them their new nature. As long as we have a sinful nature, we are defiled. Therefore, when God's people are sealed, the sinful nature must be removed from them. And then they are no longer tempted by evil. What have I just read? I have read the original sin teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, brought down into the Protestant churches and rearing its head in the Adventist church by those who are being most faithful in trying to obey all of God's requirements. And then, in addition to that, I have read something that Ellen White dealt with in her lifetime called Holy Flesh. You know what Holy Flesh is? It's not about your character. It's not about your choices. It's about you get a nature transplant when you receive the seal of God before the close of probation. Because, you see, if you believe that we're sinners by nature 
and we keep our natures till Jesus comes, we will be sinning till Jesus comes. And these folks don't believe that. So how do you have any people that can live without sin after the close of probation? The only way is a nature transplant. God rips this old fallen nature out of you. He puts in Adam's perfect nature in you, and you won't be tempted anymore. That's why you'll live without sin, we're told, after the close of probation. So we've got two doctrines going here. As I said, it doesn't, it's not about the feasts, but it is among those who are holding on to the feasts as important for the end of time. Original sin and holy flesh. If you have any, any doubt about this teaching, look up Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 32. All may now obtain holy hearts, but it is not correct to claim in this life to have holy flesh. That means nature. That word flesh, anytime you see it, it means nature. No human being on the earth has holy flesh. It is an impossibility. When human beings receive holy flesh, they will not remain on the earth, but will be taken to heaven. We will get holy flesh when Jesus comes. A holy nature, a perfect nature. Let this phase of doctrine be carried a little farther, and it will lead to the claim that its advocates cannot sin. That's holy flesh. Once you've been given this perfect nature, you won't be tempted anymore. You can't sin, and you are walking straight into heaven based on your nature transplant. Some very, very dangerous teachings tagged on to this feast day issue. Folks, when things begin to go wrong, they multiply. And one thing is added to the next, and the next, and the next. All right, let's see if I can bring all of this to some kind of conclusion. What do we have about 10 minutes left? I think so. Faithful Adventists are very frustrated about the long delay in the second coming of Christ. You are, they are. There must be some new light. There must be some new magic bullet that we can find that will unlock the second coming of Christ. But you know what? God saw all of this ahead of time too. This doesn't catch him by surprise, this frustration, this desire to find something new. I'm going to read a couple of, of things from Ellen White. I want you to hear them carefully. This is in the Ellen White 1888 materials. Very many will get up some test that is not given in the Word of God. We have our test in the Bible. Now what's she going to say next? The commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. This is the true test. But many other tests will arise among the people. They will come up in multitudes, springing up from this one and that one. There will be a continual rising up of some foreign thing to call attention from the true test of God. Are we seeing that today in many areas? Some new thing. In the little devotional book, Christ Triumphant, page 363, we should be careful about receiving everything termed new light. I have been shown that it is the device of the enemy to divert minds to some obscure or unimportant point, something that is not fully revealed or is not essential to salvation. Satan's object is accomplished just as surely, notice, when people run ahead of Christ. And do the work he has never entrusted to their hands, as when they remain in the Laodicean state, lukewarm, feeling rich and increased with goods and in need of nothing. The two classes are equally stumbling blocks. Equally. Some zealous ones who are aiming and straining every energy for originality have made a grave mistake in trying to get something startling, wonderful, entrancing before the people, something that they think others do not comprehend, but often they do not themselves know what they are talking about. Another one which is of some interest, I think, is um, Review and Herald, May 29, 1888. The doctrine of truth will be mingled with error, and the result will be that those who are taught will cherish error as they do the truth. Have you noticed that? Listen to this. It will be more difficult to reach and correct their errors than to bring a company into the truth from the darkness of complete ignorance of the truth. I've found that to be true. Have you? 
more difficult. It would have been better if they had not heard this mingling of the truth with falsehood. More harm can be done by one who has a mixture of truth and error than many who teach the whole truth can undo and correct. More harm than those who try to correct it. There were those in Paul's day who were constantly dwelling upon circumcision, and they could bring plenty of proof from the Bible to show its obligation to the Jews. Plenty of proof for circumcision. Instead of catching up every new and fanciful interpretation of the Bible, cling to the message, she says. It is the third angel's message that bears the true test to the people. Satan will lead men to manufacture false tests and thus seek to obscure the value of and make of none effect the message of truth. The commandment of God that has been almost universally made void is the testing truth for this time. The Sabbath of Jehovah is to be brought to the attention of the world. What's the test? The seventh day creation Sabbath based on the weekly cycle. But all man-made tests will divert the mind from the great and important doctrines that constitute the present truth. Maybe that's the greatest danger. It leads into an area of diversion. We're not focusing on the one central thing. We're not focusing on heart preparation. We're not focusing on preparing for the seal of God. We're focusing on this teaching and that teaching, whether it is the name of God, that's interesting to talk about, or the fact that the Trinity is a Catholic doctrine, or whether or not we can have day-for-day prophecies in the future from the book of Revelation to replace the day-for-year that has always been there, or whether or not we should keep the feasts as part of God's plan to receive the seal of God. All diverting. Satan, listen, Satan doesn't care how he traps God's people. In worldliness, he's content with that. In Laodiceanism, we've all been subject to that. Or foreign things to take our attention away from the real test of obedience for this time. There's only one test. Faithfulness to God's commandments and the faith of Jesus. The moral law and the statutes are clearly not the moral law. Oh, that's not as glamorous, you know, to talk about obedience and, you know, heart preparation. It is much more fun to talk about this text and that text and the other one, the Trinity, the prophecies, the Hebrew observances, and to find some history. Being part of the 144,000, my friends, is about heart surrender and not much more. Yes, we should have an intelligent knowledge But God can teach us a lot under the power of the latter rain if our hearts are surrendered today and tomorrow and the next day. It's heart surrender that's the key issue. Let's not be sidetracked, my friends, with new light, which is neither new nor light. Well, you've listened to some heavy-duty things yesterday and today. This is not easy stuff to wrestle with. But, friends, we are being hit hard by faithful people who are wanting to see Jesus come. And let's be sure that we don't get trapped in any of the traps, Laodiceanism or fanaticism. Satan doesn't care which it is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray... I pray for my brothers and sisters who are just as sincere about wanting to be ready for Jesus to come, but have allowed some theories to impinge upon their heart preparation that is necessary, to replace the daily struggle with a fallen nature, to deal with how we can overcome fallen nature, even sometimes suggesting that we have to have it taken away before we can ever overcome sin. Oh, Lord, there are so many deceptions, so many areas in which we can be trapped. Father, I pray for this congregation. I pray for everyone who is involved in some of these movements of new light that thy Holy Spirit can undo, can correct, can prepare a people ready to meet you. I pray it in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.
www.thepeopleofgod.org.